if you are waiting for clients, then why would you not do free coaching in one form or another? I, I tend to do pro bono activities that tend not to be coaching, you know, coordinating my groups, organizing events, speaking. Like my pro bono things tend not to be coaching, but but that's just my my I don't know, it's not even a preference, it's just what evolved without me thinking about it. But if you are a coach and especially a coach in the early stages, why would you not want to do more coaching? Hello, hello, and welcome to the Coaching Life Podcast, where we peel back the bullcrap and brush away any photoshopping to give you an unfiltered look at what it's like to live a coaching life. Now, sometimes in life, we meet someone, often by chance, indeed, maybe always by chance, who impacts us just by being with them. Maybe they have a sense of peace about them, maybe um, a deep knowing or at least they instill in us a deep knowing that they're listening to us, that they see us and even understand us. And if we're lucky, they might offer us something, such as a question that has us look at a situation or our life a little differently. Now, today's guest has been of one of those people for me. We met via a mutual friend. It's rather amusing that that friend lives some 4,000 odd miles away <laughs> from both of us. And uh, since then, she's been someone I feel absolutely blessed to have in my life. Someone I also call a friend, consider a friend. And uh, I realized that we hadn't talked much about her journey uh, into coaching. So let's do that today. A very warm welcome to my very dear friend, Kathy Presland. Hello. Phil, thank you. I feel similarly blessed. And thank you to Kim, who introduced us again, fortuitously. But as you say, who knows whether it's, who knows, who Who knows? knows? Predestination is not something that I... I believe about the world, but who knows? People fall into our lives. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. So, you know, I normally ask my guests actually like off the bat, how did they get into coaching? But, you know, I know that you in particular, not to say none of my other guests have, of course not, but um, I know a little bit about uh, you've had a quite an interesting career before you started focusing much more on coaching. So I wonder if you'd like to just briefly share a little bit about that before we go into, you know, how you then got into coaching. Yeah, so uh, so I'm old <laughs> in years, <laughs> which means I've done a lot of stuff. And I've always, I think from a young age, had that desire to 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 want to make an impact. I know we know we all talk about that, but I think that there's been something about a sense of fairness which has always been present in my life. And actually I was reflecting on it a little bit this morning because I knew we were talking today and um, I was trying to to kind of think where that came from and we can talk more about that families and so on but in my career I did I studied economics and I have a postgraduate degree in in development economics and I've spent I so I spent the early part of my career overseas in Africa working on economic development issues I had a few interesting positions in Africa and then I came back to the UK I continued to work in development and then I transitioned to working on projects in those countries that at that time, which was the late 90s, early 2000s, were joining the European Union, Poland, Hungary, Romania, that kind of group of countries in, in the, the former Eastern Bloc. Yeah. 
worked with them on institution building, um, helping them prepare for their for their membership of the EU. Some of them were in Romania, particularly is one that I remember that was in such a, a kind of a, a desperate economic and social situation at that at that point in time, and it was really interesting. We're two years now, I think, down the road from Brexit, and it's been really interesting when when the whole Brexit debate was going on and Romania kind of came back into my mind as a country that that I remember going there in, gosh, it must have been maybe 99, where there were packs of wild dogs on the streets of Bucharest and the civil servants weren't being paid and there was barely any kind of regional governments. Well, there was no regional government structure at all. There was a you know, central economy and then some village structures. And looking to what Romania is now and was you know two years ago when uh, when we had the brexit vote here in the uk and so 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 i worked so you know worked um with those countries and then i joined central government uh shortly after that and i worked in central government initially in economics but i moved out of technical economics probably in the, in the kind of early 2000s into policy advice and i became more and more senior and worked on i, I worked on european issues for actually quite a large part of that career did some other things employment always things that in my mind have been about overcoming poverty in, in one way or another that it's always been against that kind of common backdrop and um, as I became more and more senior I had a big team of people I worked with ministers and I became more interested in how how we interact as people how we are influenced how we make decisions what it is that contributes to human performance and that's really how i how i came into coaching i did one of those leadership programs while i was still in government and that included a coaching element to it and then uh, and, and a coaching qualification and then so then when i decided to leave work that was the, the natural place to go and it's it's been a bumpy journey since then I can tell you straight off the bat but it's yeah it doesn't look now like I thought it would look then but but it was from that it was from that fascination with people and how we think and how 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 we think affects how we behave and yeah and so um, yeah I, I'm intrigued out of that really um I think what I'm hearing but I'm going to ask you anyway was it was it that there was really that interest in in human behavior if we want to just generalize that that and you then discovered coaching as a part of that yeah yeah absolutely and in fact when i first discovered coaching it was executive coaching and i it's taken me a long time to really get along with coaching and it's and, and it's well, I mean, we can talk about the principles and coming into mm. an understanding of the, the three principles and what that's meant for me in my coaching career. But it seemed to me when I first discovered coaching through both being coached by professional coaches, but also doing a coaching qualification or coaching camp practice as part of this, this leadership program so that I could coach my staff. I knew there was something in it because that was the mechanism through which we're able to interact with people and help people see something about themselves. But I just didn't quite find myself resonating with the, the kind of the form of the executive coaching that I was studying at that time. I actually found it fairly trivial. 
you know, the kind of models and techniques. It seemed very superficial. It seemed like there's something in this, but like this is not, you know, there's, there's something this is very surface level and there's something deeper to this. And yeah. and so I kind of struggled a little bit with what is coaching? What am I? What is my role? What am I doing? I'd always been told that I was a really good manager. I was a really good leader. A lot of people turned to me for advice, both technically on the policy side, but also in terms of professional situations, not just the people that I managed. So I knew that there was something that was not, you know, not the kind of being in the position of being a manager, that there's something that we do as people. There's something that we help people see about themselves. And I guess it was that that I was trying to, to uncover yeah i'm curious <laughs> at what what point was it like oh i want to do this full-time or freelance or for my own was that like pre-principles or post pre-principles no long time pre-principles um i had um i don't even think what moment was but there was a moment probably about probably about nine or ten years ago when I was in my, maybe it was even when I kind of hit 40 and I had what I call a sort of sports car moment. I know a lot of middle-aged men who go off and buy sports cars. <laughs> and, and I had that moment. And I, I absolutely loved my work. I meet a lot of people who are self-employed or in terms of coaching because they're kind of running away from something that they didn't enjoy. I absolutely loved my work. I really loved it. And I had a moment, I remember, I was sitting in the office thinking, gosh, you know, I could do this for the next five years and that would be fine. Or I could do something else. Hmm, okay. I'll do something else. <laughs> and there was no, like, there was no, it, it was nothing really more than that. And and uh, I was, um, my kind of boss's boss tried to put me out of it. Oh, what have we done? What can we do? How can we, you know, what can we offer you? All of that is like, look, it's really not you. It is just, and it just felt, the only way I could explain it to him was it's like, it's like the sports car moment. You know, guys go off and buy sports cars. It just feels like I've had this crazy idea. I don't know. Let's see. Mm. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm, so I'm getting quite curious about that then, the, the, the transition, because um, I, I think I was probably 50-50. I definitely was running away from my corporate yeah. job. Um, but I'd, and and I'd already, so I, I left twice. Like I came across mm -hmm. a concept of coaching um, and then thought, oh yeah, well, I've been doing that with my with my teams. I've been in leadership positions for many years. And I thought, well, that's what I've been doing with my teams. I've been coaching yeah. my teams. People do this as a, for a living. Okay, I'll have me some of that. So I like quit within months, literally within months and, and gave it a go. Didn't really make enough money. Went back and took corporate for another five years or so and and then left for the last time so I'm, I'm curious then what was your transition like well when I first transitioned in fact I, I I didn't call it coaching then if I didn't know it was coaching I knew there was I knew there was something in all of this and I called it um strategy basically I thought I was helping people in small organizations in the same sort of way that I'd been in this leadership position I and plus had my economics background. I thought that's what I was helping them with, and I I became initially quite frustrated that people don't do what you tell them to do. Things <laughs> like that doesn't work, and and it wasn't finding clients. Just didn't I? Just, I know I just could not make the whole thing work. I didn't feel didn't feel like I'd found what I wanted to do. It didn't feel like I was having any real benefit with people. I thought about going back 
to some kind of consultancy in the areas that I'd worked in. And at the same time, Robin had left his work. Robin's my partner, if you've met, and he was doing consultancy and the children were, they weren't tiny at that stage, they were kind of middle-sized. And I took, a, I guess, a, a sort of unspoken decision that, okay, I'll do something that I can do flexibly and that I can still be at home. I can still be here in the UK and do the school pickups mm-hmm. and things. Yeah. And his his consultancy work involves him being away for usually two weeks at a time. So so I kind of had that as a, I guess, a, I didn't see it as a constraint, but as a, you know, as a constraint that this within this type of work. More of a framework. Yeah. Fr- more of a framework. And yeah. so I... So I honestly struggled for for a while to find out what it was I could even do. I know I've got valuable skills. I've got all of this expertise. I just like, why am I not finding the thing? And in fact, Robin sent me off down a different avenue because he said, well, why don't you write more? You've always written. Of course, I had. I've been you know, writing policy papers, writing for ministers, you know, advising people. I'd always, you know, again, it was something that I do, I do kind of okay at it. And uh, I thought, yeah, you know, he's right, actually, that's true. And so I, and again, it was something that I was being asked about a lot. Um, I found that the people that were coming to me, well, how do you do this? And how do you do that? And he seemed to find his writing thing quite easy. So so I sort of followed the the demand that was coming to me. And, you know, and again, you hear that in the business advice circles, don't you hear that kind of, see what the demand is and follow where, where that's leading. And so I found myself down an avenue working with, writers for, for some time and in a, in a coaching capacity I wasn't doing editing work I wasn't giving them technical feedback on the writing but I was working with them in a in a coaching capacity to help them get things done help them overcome some of that thinking that you know we all have about lots of things but people find it with writing I'm not my work's not good enough I don't want to put my work out there you know the various forms that it takes when, when people are talking about writing and I was really quite successful at that. I had some coaching clients. I've got a lot of online courses. I've got 20,000 students who knew my online courses. I work for the Guardian newspaper, which is a big national newspaper here in the UK. They run a series of masterclasses. I did some writing masterclasses with them. And so, you know, so I kind of made a very successful, um, almost like a side step, it seemed to me. And, and that felt fine. But again, I got to a point after maybe two or three years where it was kind of is this it? is this really the thing? And I was in a uh, this was about the time that I was that I was coming into the principal. I had I knew there was something in this coaching thing, and so I um, went on a course with Michael Neal um, called Coaching from the Inside Out, and I I knew Michael as a you know as a coach's coach as a coach and somebody who taught coaching. What I didn't realize was the framework that he had moved into at that time was this thing that we call the three principles. And so I I, I was on this, I think it was a two-day program, and I thought, this is like being at somebody else's dinner party where they're all talking about their friends, and I don't know any of their friends. (laughs) (laughs) It it honestly sounded like that. And so, okay, fine, I didn't pay much attention to that. And... It was about a year later, I think, um, I was in a small mastermind group. I'd been there about two or three years. Uh, we were a very close group of four of us. We met every I think we met every three weeks for about two or three years. And one of the, the guys in this mastermind turned around to me. We were having a, a kind of a business planning retreat. We were away for two days. And he turned around to me and he said, 
Kathy said, you need to give this up, this writing thing, because it's like a little kid with their teddy bears. <laughs> and he said, you're like a kid with a teddy bears. It's nice and it's fun and it's fine, but you have to let it go. And maybe we all laughed. And, and But there was something in it. There was something in what he was saying. And within like 24 hours, I thought, okay, I'm going to go back to this this coaching thing. I'm going to make a commitment to immerse myself in it. And just to say, you know, it's a yes or a no. I'm going to love it or hate it. I'm going to make once and for all. I felt I'd been putting my toe in the water, coming back out, putting my toe in the water. I didn't know even what the water looked like. So I went back to this coaching from the inside out program that had the videos, the audios from Michael. And it was like a completely different program. It was as if it was a different program and I don't know what I heard I haven't listened to it since actually I don't know what I heard in it but there was something that I heard in it which then sent me on more of an exploration of the principles and the principles in coaching and I continued to coach around a, a kind of a strategic framework and I was talking to people about the content of what they were doing as well as the, you know, as well as the deeper, the way that we think and how we think and what it, what it means to be human. And that continued for a couple of years after that. And then I signed up for Super Coach Michael's um, coaching program. And I've just completed um, Super Coach for a second time around. He takes yeah. a small group of people on the advanced track. So I've just, just completed his advanced uh, transformative coaching program. Yeah. And it really felt after... You know, when I listened a second time, and I heard something, it, it, people talk about the principles, about that feeling of coming home, and it, it was just as if something had clicked. It was like, oh, now I get it. And it had taken me, I don't know, maybe six years to get to that point. Yeah. And there hadn't been bad years, you know, all of them. It wasn't a, you know, a sense of frustration, but I knew that something was just not clicking I I I wonder what it was within you. Do you think when you look back at that? Um, I might rephrase the question I was going to ask. Actually, how are you? How does your coaching look different now? You know, if I was observing what you're doing with your clients, say five years ago, compared with now, what what is different? Five years ago, there would be a combination between the outer content and the inner. So I've always had a focus on the inner. I think that's something that, you know, that we know instinctively in any of us who are drawn to anything around connecting with other people, leadership, coaching, you know, whatever, whatever it looks like for us. Anybody who is drawn to that, we have some sense of there's something in that human connection. There's something in that when two people just look at each other or a room of people look at each other, you know, we know that. We know that there's something magical in that. But I also thought there was something in the in the form, in the way that we were, either in our psychology. I was really curious at the time when I when I first left work, so kind of going back a long time ago, I was really fascinated by things like personality profiling. I'm gonna, you know, do do a couple of those. And what I see now is I see those as preferences. And they're even described as preferences. I don't yeah, know. Psychologists yeah. try to kind of make up a lot of stuff. But I didn't I hear it differently now than I heard it then. And and so so there was a form to the coaching. Well, if you're like this, then XYZ follows. Whereas now 
I actually sometimes use the example about about going out for a meal. One of my sons is a chef and I say, you know, I always have a preference for the custard pudding. So I'll go for like the creme brulee or the flan or something like that. I don't really like chocolate puddings. If he made me a chocolate pudding, it would be the best pudding I'd ever eaten. You know, I have a preference for something for sure. But the preference doesn't mean anything because the thing that means something is that the chocolate pudding is a means for me and my son to to, to put into the form of the chocolate pudding an expression of love and connection. And that for me is the exact analogy with personality mm. profiles, with any of the things that we do um, around the form. So so five years ago it would have looked more like, and not just the personality profile, and then when I um, worked more with writers, again, there was more, you know, not a lot of form, but there was a bit more form around it. Let's do some structures. Let's do some exercises. But what I see now is those exercises were a way of helping people come out of their their obsession with their thoughts to be able yeah. to drop thoughts and to come back to, okay, well, what do we have access to when we don't have all of these thoughts about I'm not good enough, my work doesn't, doesn't resonate. You know, when we drop everything that, and we've got that, metaphorical or literal in the case of writers clean sheets of paper and we've got access to an unlimited supply of ideas then what's going to come through you and so I see now what I was doing and why certain things worked and certain things don't work and I think that's why it feels so comfortable because the the the, the three principles I think is a you know it's, it's a framework I don't I'm not a kind of three principles police person that it has to be described in exactly you know the terminology that that we use but i see it as a framework for describing what all of us do which is we make up stories we we have thought and it looks real to us some of the time and then some of the time we can see through that and some of the time it falls away and when that happens we've got access to this unlimited potential and unlimited creativity unlimited ideas We've got access to that ability to get on with any person in the world because we just see the life that is in them, that is in us. And that's one way of describing it with a certain set of words. And when we do that, when we help people see that that is what's true and important and real and everything else, then it's the kind of the game that we're playing in life. Yeah. So I'm wondering if um, I'd like to just explore this just a little bit further with a perhaps a well, this is a made up example, but it's very much like a real life made up example because it's something that I've come across numerous times, even personally myself during my leadership days, um, but also with other clients as well. So let's just say I'm you know a senior manager, senior leader in a in a large organisation, and I have one of my direct reports who's not performing very well and in fact they're very anti the organization and they're very anti me and they're, they're very rude to me um and you know i have to think well do i need to put them on performance improvement plan and all that kind of stuff yeah. so if you were coaching me on that how might you approach that yeah well i had a client actually <laughs> not not that exact <laughs> situation but he had um a couple of members in his team he had a part of his team was in the uk part of them were in the us and he um had one person who was experiencing a lot of anxiety and taking a lot of stress leave and just not engaged with the work and he thought this person just like doesn't enjoy work and he had another person who um i suspect from 
from if we were to put labels on this person we would describe him as autistic or or having asperger's or some, something on that kind of spectrum and he was inappropriate in some of the social interactions again so things very literally all of the things that you might you know you know you might use if you're putting a label on a person but yet he had some good technical skills and so my client was finding it difficult to know how to interact with this person how to give him feedback about his work and in my head I'm thinking oh gosh this is a situation we're not going to be able to resolve um and I you know I said obviously speak to your HR people HR department said to him I'm sure if you want to sack this guy sack this guy and so we talked about um about having honest conversations with people, sitting down in a room, letting go of any attachment you might have to talking to the person in front of you and knowing that they they are in the same situation, that it's highly unlikely that this person who's not interacting very well with senior managers throughout the organisation is completely unaware of that. Of course, we we all know at some level that there's something that's just not not quite working for us. And finding out if that person's open to changing, are they open to not being judged in any way, but just like what would work for you, what would make your job better, what would make your work life better? Is this something that I can support you with? And so the line manager is there as a as a as a way of helping their person do the best that they can. I don't think leadership is about getting an output from people. I see leadership as a way of helping the people around you are all equals in this made up hierarchical structure, helping those people a be comfortable in their own skin that we're all humans. And even if the person leaves and even if the job doesn't work out, you know, that's, that's just what happens on that day, but helping that person understand for themselves what it means to, to, perform as well as they can and feel that real sense of well-being as much of the time as they can and I think from that I think the outputs will follow and in fact some of the reason I want to use this example is that from what I mean it looked to me like an unresolvable situation but you know I knew that was my thought that wasn't real so we talked about it um he was a brilliant client who you know was happy to put his own thinking aside and have these conversations and support his team and he wrote to me some months later and said not only are his team achieving all of the targets in the company in a marketing role, but they are achieving targets that nobody in the company has ever achieved before. Mm-hmm. And and it could have been different. It could have been that both of these members of staff might have decided or that they weren't right or they might have ended up being sacked. I mean, who knows? It could have the the outcome could have been different. But I think when we focus on the people mm. and the empowerment and the well-being and the, the like, we're all in this together, let's do the best we can, both individually and collectively, then I think then I think the, out, the outputs take care of themselves. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. I love that. I, I always uh, suggest uh, to my clients that leadership um, in its purest form is really a support role. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about um, where clients have come from, perhaps in your early venture into coaching and, you know, through the journey perhaps to to, to how they find you now. Yeah, so I think in the very, very early days when I first left work, I think the traditional kind of networking, I went to a few business networks, connected with a few people, had some clients that way. 
then as I moved more into supporting writers, um, a lot of people found me through the things that I do online. I have a lot of online courses. Sometimes they'd meet me, sometimes they'd be referred. Um, and now clients seem to find me very randomly. <laughs> <laughs> And it tends to almost always, not not 100%, because uh, I don't like to make rules because I think, oh, it's this. And then, of course, it's an exception to, to uh, shatter my assumptions. Almost always through personal connections, I think, that I find I've met somebody, somebody's referred the person. I've met them and then they've been on my email list. So somebody, I, I remember one guy, um, I'd met him somewhere and then he wrote to me and said, oh, you may not remember, we met actually on a plane, bizarrely, but, and I've been getting your emails for the last six months and this thing you wrote just resonated with me. So so there's something in that and I find, I mean, again, not typically, sometimes I'll, I'll find clients that literally I just met today, but I do find that there tends to have been some relationship there, something, even if it's a one-way relationship where people have been reading emails or you know, they're only from social media, but there tends to be something which has provided a foundation. But that's not, that's absolutely not a rule. And as soon as I, I hear myself saying that, I know of people who've you know, literally just come into contact with me in the last few days. And then the next thing we're talking about becoming clients. But it tends to be like that. And, it, and they tend to, when I think about the conversations that I have with potential clients, and the ones that turn into people becoming clients, they tend to almost have decided before we talk. And I think, again, that's coming from the relationship. Yeah. I'm not great at the whole sales thing. And I don't know, it feels like I talk to people and then they don't become clients. And I think, oh, is that something I did? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like somebody was a bit and, – and, and it's frustrating in a way because I know I can help people. Yeah, I know that I can help with the thing that's, yeah. that's bothering them. But but maybe they're just not ready. And sometimes people don't become clients and then six months later they do become clients or I work with them in some other capacity and actually I sometimes experience that that was a good thing. It wasn't that a good thing that they didn't work with me six months ago for, and I don't know if we just make this stuff up as humans, Phil, but. <laughs> well, you know, the way I see it um, is that if we've spent, you know, the last 10 years sitting on our sofa consuming um, just consuming everything, you know, scrolling through Facebook and consuming books, podcasts, webinars, and whatever. Nobody really knows about us. Yeah. Um, but I know, so um, one of the things, like one of my previous mentors, Steve Chandler, he would always instill in us, just always be planting seeds, always yeah. be planting seeds. And we don't know which ones are going to sprout or, or where they're going to shoot up or whatever. You. So, and so, so me, I notice... Um, there's not a direct relationship, but there is a relationship. There's very much a yes. relationship. It's the relationship is quite. It looks quite random, but there is definitely a relationship between um, not me consuming, but me producing. Some people might turn that showing up in the world, and I, I I do all kinds of stuff. So I've written a couple of books. I go to lots of different events. They might just be personal development events, not just coaching events, because I'm not that big on coaching coaches. But you know things that I'm interested in and meet people go to go to talks as well and um and then contribute as well so produce content and that producing content can just be engaging in conversations um on Facebook in groups uh core blimey um 
just think I do. I know I do lots of obviously this podcast. Um, and one of mm-hmm. my favourites, one of my favourites, said, "Well, there's two of mine are are uh, one guy came to me." And he said, I overheard you having a conversation with somebody at a particular training event a couple of years ago. <laughs> and he'd like been following me on social media since. And another one, I actually physically bumped into somebody in the street, like physically bumped into her, knocked her shopping bag out of her hand and whatever. So, you know, we're, yeah. we're, we could be planting seeds. Anyway. I wonder, so what kind of seeds have you been planting? I completely, just let me say, first of all, I completely 100% agree with you. And I'll tell you what I do, but I think there's a real difference between the consuming which often takes us up into our head oh i'm not good enough oh i need to be doing x oh you know we're in thought which is never constructive because it's just not real it's like a fog of crazy (laughs) dreaming versus like i'm going to do stuff and the way i see i see i see exactly what you see which is i it's almost like two train tracks i do stuff and clients come, and I don't, I don't know that there's necessarily a relationship. There must be a relationship, clearly, but I don't know what the relationship is. But I do know if I didn't do stuff, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't have clients. It just the times when I'm. It's a, I notice, for example, um, so I've, I've done two years now with Michael Neal, so I notice the times. You know, I'm away for a week, and then there's a the travel and. Um, sometimes I'll take a few days. Like I notice when I've been, you know, out of things, 100% immersed in that, oh, things feel a bit quiet. And the first time it happened, I got a bit worried about it. And then I thought, well, that, that's perfectly obvious. Of course, you've been, no, I'm not invisible, but uh, my focus has been on this thing fully 100%. And so, of course, why would I expect the, the track of clients or activities or invitations to webinars or whatever, why would I expect that to work when I'm not on this track of doing stuff? And so, and not that it's bad to do courses, I absolutely love all the things that I've done with Michael. Um, and that's contributed to, to the way that I am in the world. And so the sorts of things that I choose to do, so I write to my email list once a week, um, and I do things that I enjoy doing. So because of my background in international development and economics, I chair a group of impact investors, a group, a group of people who donate to um, investments in developing countries to stimulate enterprise as a way of, of stimulating economic development and overcoming poverty. You know, I chair a group of, of I consider them to be young people. They're probably in their early to mid-30s in general, not all of them. Um, I do that. That's a pro bono activity. I do um, um, a couple of events. I'm a fellow at the at the RSA, and I help organise events for the coaching network. I, I like you. I don't do a lot of work with coaches, but the coaching network is intended to support social entrepreneurs with coaching inputs or skills or, or you know practices. So I'll organize these free events i give up my time and expertise to 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 lead you know an event every six months or so um i i attend events i don't go to any any business type networkings but i attend things where the subject matter is of interest to me and i find random connections turn into real connections so i was at um a philanthropy group and which was related to the work that i do the volunteer work that i do in the impact investing work and i met some guy who's done a lot of work in cambodia he's a philanthropist he's got a lot of money and 
people I invited him to talk to. You know, all of this is kind of in this world of my impact investing circles. And and it turns out this guy, unbeknownst to me, is also very active in a political organization. And so I'm now in conversation with him about how I might, might support him and his organization. I could not possibly have predicted that because I just didn't <laughs> know it about him. I didn't know any of this. And it was, in fact, only when he came to speak that one of my members said, oh, isn't he the guy who XXX? And I was like, well, oh. I don't know. <laughs> I know he gives money to the Labour Party, but I didn't know about this other, you know, and it's like, how could I possibly have known that? So I go about doing the things that I enjoy doing, contributing, connecting, like you, I put content out into the world. And, and then things lead to connections. And then we have to do some work. Like I have to phone him up and say, hey, you know, we were going to have a conversation about this and he's busy and and so I have to make a follow-up you know what I mean it's not like I sit back yeah. and everything comes to me we have to do stuff but but the opportunities it's almost like the opportunities are there for us if we if we I was going to say if we look for them that's not even the right way is it it's if we are aware that that's how it works yeah I've summarized it previously that I just think we have to dance just go and dance with the universe yeah. really um, absolutely yeah so yeah. I want to have a poke around behind the doors there. All right. Yeah. So um, I'm wondering when you look back, what for you has been like the, the real, the, the thing that you found perhaps the most difficult in all, amongst all of this? Um, has it all been an absolute piece of cake? Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> God, if only. Do you know, I was talking about this recently on on the advanced track, I was having some coaching. And the thing for me that is the most, that has been the most difficult, I think, to summarize it is to know when I am, when I am holding back too much versus when I need to be asking for things. Does that make sense? Well, and what, that, in what respect? Yeah, in a number of different respects. So, so, we had a whole conversation. We had to do a, um, a, a project as part of this advanced track. And somebody made a, a kind of a throwaway observation, um, she said afterwards, about how we'd all been, how we'd, it, it seemed as if we all got on really well. We were all hugely respectful towards each other. But she wondered about whether it would have been any different if we'd had a bit more leadership. And so we had, we've been collaborative and kind of intentionally so because. The previous year had been a little bit combative and the whole project had taken a long time to pull together. So it's almost as if we'd we'd wanted to avoid the mistakes that they'd made. So we'd said, right, we're not going to do what they did. We're going to be collaborative. We're going to make sure that the project is more important than anybody's ego. And and yet maybe we've gone too far. And so as I was thinking about that, I thought, what because there were points in the project where I was aware of things that I wanted to say that I didn't say, that I thought, okay, I don't think this feels right, or I think we should do this. And and I didn't say anything. And I think I have a bias towards politeness is the word that I'm going to put on it. And I, I don't know if it's a habit, if it's a training, if it's a kind of pattern. And, it, and that shows up in a number of ways. Like it showed up in that project. There were times when I could have said something and the only thing that's stopping me is because I have some unconscious thought that I might offend somebody or I might look stupid or it might not be like whatever I'm making the thought to look like. And it's unconscious. I mean, I in this project, I didn't even realize I was doing it until we kind of analyzed it afterwards. 
and I do that in a number of different places. So I might do it in sales conversations. I might have a great conversation. It's like, oh, fucking hell, don't you want to You know, it's like I don't necessarily make the ask as boldly as I know some other coaches would. And I might do it, you know, and again, just talking about the example with the political organisation, that that it's, how oh, do I call the person? Am I bothering them? I know he's busy. And like, yeah. I don't know whether they're busy, they don't want to speak to me. I don't know. But if I don't, if I don't call them, yeah. and so it's, it's, and so that's, so that's a kind of a, you know, a pattern that shows in, up in a number of different ways for me. And yet I see it so clearly with other people. I have another client who was, who it came with exactly this business had gone down on one side and he had opportunities on the other. And he said, well, why don't you speak to those people? He said, oh, I don't know. It feels like I'm being very pushy. And he spoke to his contact and his contact said, oh, my goodness, I've been really wanting to work with you, but I felt like you were too busy and I didn't want to bother you. So they both had in their heads mm. made up stuff. And actually, they both wanted to work with each. Do you know what I mean? And and so I can see it clear as day in other people, but I'm starting to see it more clearly in me. Yeah, yeah thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I mean, I relate to an extent, but I realise... Um... I used to do that much more than now. I mean, in fact, I'm probably a little bit more at the opposite end of the scale. I'm probably very often a little bit too mischievous than is uh, welcome, shall we say, at times. Um, because I've, I'm amused by personality, actually. You know, this, this thing that we construct yeah. about ourselves and that we construct about others. And, you know, I've done a lot of work with the Enneagram, but really from an mm -hmm. amusement perspective, I just, just find that whole thing so amusing. Um, Kathy, time's passing so quickly. I've got a, a couple of three more questions for you. So I'm wondering, so people listening to this podcast, if they're in the first uh, couple of years of building a coaching practice, if you had a bunch of people in, in the room um, and you just had a message for them, a 30-second, one-minute message, whatever, for them, what might what yeah. might that be? Oh, I've heard you ask people this question, Phil, and and the the question when I'm when I'm listening to your podcast, I, I I've listened to a couple of them. The question that always comes to me before the person answers is is about coaching. The thing that has been really helpful for me has been more coaching. When I've done the work with Michael, for example, for the certifications, it's required a certain number of coaching hours. So you just have to go out and get the hours. You, know? you just have to immerse yourself paid whatever and, and he, you know, his requirement is that a certain number of them are paid but whatever it is so there's definitely something in the practice and and doing the hours and just having something within a coaching framework we're not talking about a conversation with your friend in the pub or um the, the kind of conversations that are not within a coaching framework i think there is something about the form of the framework and just coaching and if you are waiting for clients then why would you not do free coaching in one form or another? I, I tend to do pro bono activities that tend not to be coaching, you know, coordinating my groups, organizing events, speaking. Like my pro bono things tend not to be coaching, but but that's just my, my I don't know, it's not even a preference, it's just what evolved without me thinking about it. But if you are a coach, and especially a coach in the early stages, why would you not want to do more coaching? And the only thing that gets in the way of that is our ego and our thinking and what it can possibly mean about me. And, you know, me too, like I have those thoughts. I'm supposed to be a coach who's got, you know, all these years experience and I'm asking for coaching sessions for free. Like, of course, I have thinking about that, but getting beyond my thinking and doing it anyway so that's 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 like a, a you know an absolute um an absolute advice recommendation you know just immerse yourself in it and the other thing i think is when i when i talk to people about the principles and 
what it is and what it means. And when I look at other coaches who are doing what I would consider to be good work, but who have no understanding of the principles, what I see them doing is is helping people come out of their thinking. I think anybody who's doing good coaching is helping people get a perspective above what the person is immersed in so that so that they can see that we're you know like a dog digging a hole and of course we can dig if we keep digging the hole we'll get deeper but actually maybe the bone's just sitting right next to the hole and if we were to step back we'd see oh okay there it is why was i digging why was i digging this hole here (laughs) it looks crazy when you realize the bone's right next to you but like it's like i see good coaches doing that and so so my advice to coaches would be would be to think about that, to think about what it is that you do. And of course, I want to say to everybody, go off and find out about the principles, but that may not be the framework that resonates with you. I know people who do spiritual work and people who find Buddhism or people who find a different kind of work. I've got a a friend who does a lot of meditation. In fact, I was listening to um, a podcast with Sam Harris and Michael Pollan recently about psychedelics and the research that's being done around psychedelics and what they call treatment resistant depression which apparently is a thing and they were very keen to to clarify that psych that the psychedelics in themselves are not anything but it's the experience of of consciousness what they call consciousness what i would call consciousness which is really a, a kind of a separation from your in the moment experience so i'm not recommending psychedelics just to be clear but (laughs) but but the experience of consciousness the realization that actually we are not we are not defined by this thing that appears to be true which is actually just like a kind of awake dreaming that Mm. we have in the stories that we create and you know so i think in terms of coaching like for me that's where coaches can really make a difference to people of course there are experts and people who can give you you know content advice but yeah. coaching as a as a more pure profession for me that's what it's about it's yeah. about the pointing out that consciousness is available to any of us in any moment and that's where everything that we think we want comes from yeah beautiful love that so just two more questions and so you i'm sure you remember this tv program that was on here in the uk i don't know if it was if there was a spin-off of it anywhere else but it was called this is your life um well this guy just the thing with the book with the big red book and <laughs> he, would surpri- book. he would like surprise i think people. it was itv we never watched ITV. oh okay okay oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> he would this guy i can't remember what his name was actually but he'd, he would surprise people and then they'd all go away into this room and um you know various people who had been part of their lives various things that happened would the stories would get retold you know mm. so i wonder for you i won't ask obviously like for your top one that would really be putting you too much on the spot but you know if this was a this is your life kathy for you in, in respect to like your career coaching or indeed if it's something else that would be cool too what's like one you know that might be quite a magical story that would warm warm your heart to hear um oh gosh <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of putting me on the spot would be a magical story to hear yeah I don't know all of my stories of my life seem to be things where I am the butt of the joke <laughs> so, whether that's whether that's like 
you know, my older cousin who loves to tell stories about how terrible I was as a small child and, or whether it's the children, I've got boys, two boys. I don't know if this is a boy thing more than a girl thing, but the boys who seem to consistently have this reel of stories of where mum's an <laughs> idiot, but in a kind of a loving way. You know, they're always those those kinds of stories. Um, but I think it would probably be the connection with the people uh, that's more important than anything for me. And the stories are just a means of, yeah. you know, yeah. a means of connecting. And so, so obviously my family is important to me. The boys are really important to me, Robin. And my both my parents passed away about three years ago, very close together. And you know, in this, in this made-up TV series, they'd be there, and my beautiful dad and my mum, and, you know, all of that, uh, all of that, I think, family and friends and people I've worked with. And, I, you know, I've got stories of EU negotiations where I had to – I had a colleague who had worked for the Environment Agency, worked for me, but he was on, he was on the comments to me from the Environment Agency, and – Usually we took the train to Brussels and on this occasion to be there at a certain time we'd had to fly, but he had to take the train because it was environment agency regulations. And so we'd agreed some change in our negotiating strategy, um, which he wasn't aware of because he was on the train and we were all in this meeting room after getting the plane. And so when he sat next to me and he's about to come out with his line on environmental aspects of the uh, of the regional development programs, and I remember grabbing his leg under the table without thinking about it you know it's always like that which uh <laughs> which is funny funny incidents yeah. that arise in life <laughs> and he kind of looked at me as if to say why is she grabbing hold of my leg under the table and you know things like that is the um i don't want to say it's the wrong but it's 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 the unexpected things in life isn't it yeah. i always think kids always say when we go on a walk or is it going to be a mum walk meaning are we going to take some side track and get lost and end up walking twice as far as we they have promised them a cafe with a coca-cola and got them a cafe you know you know it's all these like things that didn't work out exactly they were going to work out but but we kind of know that that's that's what life is and so i think that ability to laugh together in a, in a real like nobody is laughing at anybody we're really we're, we're using the story as a means of sharing the love that we yeah. all ask. Oh, thank you. Sorry, that, that was a very long winded oh, answer. Lovely. I love it. I love it. Again, it just comes back to that, uh, again, about finding life amusing, really. And, um, you know, really not taking us too seriously. Yeah. So finally then, Cathy, thank you so much. I've yeah. loved our conversation. Just finally then, for, for you personally, what is the purpose of the work that you do? Mm. So I talk on my website, Phil, I use words like I help people make more of a difference in the world. I help wake them up to the impact that's possible for them. And what I mean by this is that we we all have this huge potential to to, to be creative and innovative and to do things and to have a kind of, I say, a positive benefit, but just this kind of creative interaction with people and we each of us hold ourselves back because of what it is we, we, we we're thinking in that moment I've talked about politeness and how sometimes that's a, a challenge for me and 
And I know it stops me from doing things that I would otherwise do. It stops those things from turning into something that could be magical and fun and interesting and helpful and welcomed by other people. And and so for me, it's that. It's about showing people that actually this potential that we have access to is not a personal thing. It's not me, Kathy, and my intellect and my personality. It's, it's an unlimited, it's access to an unlimited well of ideas and creativity and kind of bringing together of, of of people that we have access to that and that sometimes I think crazy stuff that sends me down a, a blind alley and and so it, and so it's that it's that it's that essential what what is it we do as humans what is it we're we're way more capable of and and that's in everything that's in a in a corporate context, you know, how can we perform better? How can we achieve what it is we want to achieve? But for me, the root of that is like, this is this is the choice that we've made in work. This is the purpose that we're working towards. How can we do this in a way that we are using our essential humanness and using it as a means for joy and connection and fulfillment and, you know, all of those positive emotions that we, that we seek. Lovely, beautiful. Thank you so much for your time, Kathy, today. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Yeah, you're so welcome, Phil. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Kathy and got a sense of her warmth and her commitment to being of service whilst having this absolute faith in things working out exactly as they should. In particular, she spoke about how each client comes about from a relationship, even if that is initially a one-way relationship with the client perhaps being on an email list. It's a relationship nonetheless. And if something doesn't work out, somebody doesn't become a client, uh, that's fine too. There's lots in this episode. I Right to the end, I loved how she talked about um, the purpose of her work. She said, we all have this huge potential. Each of us hold ourselves back because of what we think and believe and her work is all about showing people that this potential is not a personal thing it's an unlimited well of ideas and creativity we all have access to that what is it we're way more capable of how can we perform better and achieve what we want to achieve it's about using our essential humanness she said for joy and connectedness i love that Uh, Apologies for the sound quality at times and a few dropouts, but I'm sure that hasn't distracted you from this lovely conversation. And on on that note, I'd love to hear from you, either by making direct contact or joining the Facebook Coaching Life podcast group. If you are enjoying this podcast, please do pop along to iTunes and leave a brief, honest review. It will take you less than a minute and help other people like you find this episode, find this podcast, and get an opportunity to enjoy these conversations too. Okay, thank you once again for listening. Until next time, I wish you much love and joy. 